You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we just heard in the headlines, the State Health Department today reported 21 deaths due to COVID. An updated variant report is expected to be released later today, but it's likely it will mirror the national trend of BA5 as the dominant strain of the coronavirus. All this in a week as thousands of families send their children back to school and health officials caution of another wave of infections. Today, we talk about COVID resilience. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us today. Good morning. Hi. So, gosh, yes, resilience. We certainly need this. <laughs> yes, well, you know, you give those statistics that you just gave, and you have to think about how we would react. We would have reacted differently, say, in the height of the pandemic. It would have been all about how many cases, all about the tragic results. But, but what's happened is that the country has moved into the question, and there's more of a consensus on this, not necessarily how you do it. How resilient, how do we recover ourselves, not physically, but emotionally, mentally, structurally from what happened there? And so there has been a lot of concern about resilience. Resilience is a very well-researched topic. It's, it's a fascinating topic. And the piece that I got interested in is a, a piece in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel by a Pulitzer Prize-winning science reporter who looks at all of this research at the same time he looks at the lives of four COVID nurses in a hospital in Milwaukee. So you get a nice kind of mix of, of things there. And one of the things that, that we know now about, uh, about resiliency, and these nurses talk about what they do, and we'll come back to that. For a long period of time, when we thought about how resilient people were, we tended to emphasize the psychological cost, their fragility, because much of that was about the research that you have on when you lose a, lo a loved one. So the research began to look at other areas, other kinds of traumas, floods, wars, everything else, and what they found is really quite different, that, that f f for the most part, People recover from trauma and have a kind of stable, functioning life. That is, they have a certain kind of resilience. Now, it's, some have it much more than others. Sometimes some of it is actually genetic. Some of it is actually related to a chemical in the mother's milk. But much of it is about the interaction between you and what you went through. And as someone pointed out, resilience is the act of becoming you know, you, if you think about the nurses, for example, or you think about yourself, or we'll get back to this in a second, about kids in school where this is a real serious problem, it's a process by which you figure out what to do. Resilience is about being able to meet a problem, a serious problem head on. So what we seem to know is that, as I say, that people are pretty resilient about, are pretty resilient generally, but we face this almost unprecedented COVID pandemic when it's a work in progress to see how we really come out with it. So I guess one thing to say is you can be optimistic to the extent of what other literature says, but on, by the same token, it's very scary and it's still unknown about how we'll come out of this one. Yeah, and I think that it's the uncertainty, right? That <laughs> oh, absolutely, it fits the uncertainty. And here's the issue that I think is you, you see the focus on. You know, the nurses had one set of skills to deal with it, and a lot of it has to do with the other things in your earlier life that you built up. Another thing that it has to do is, is talking to one another about it, the strong social infrastructure. 
But what we're really faced now, and where you see so much of this and where I have some real concerns about how it might become politicized, is how resilient are our children going back to school? You know, we all there's resilience involved in so much of this. People who have been working at home, going back to work, all that Keeping sort of their stuff. Keeping their distance. Keeping their distance, and now they got to go back and inter- interact with people, but you still have to decide the things to do. But if you think back to the conflict over the mask mandate and the, the particularly the nasty stuff, people would describe their children so much as victims of the mandate that it, it that the mask made it impossible to learn. And there's a lot of back and forth on that. And there's you know some research that says that's not a problem. But here's the situation. <clears throat> There, there is different views that we have about how vulnerable we think our kids are. And we have different views because sometimes our kids are very vulnerable and sometimes they're so smart and self-reliant that you wonder if they're really your children or your <laughs> grandchildren, right? So, so, so you have that. And what I'm afraid is, is going to happen is that this will be like the old climate change conflicts that still exist, that people will take extreme views on how vulnerable their children are or how invulnerable and all of these stuffs about safety and that they won't really be nuanced enough to consider how, uh, you know, how they're getting through. I think it would be really interesting now to see how the kids have done, especially public school kids, after you know, after a year or so when they've been, when they've been back, but that's where we are. That, mm-hmm. um, and the only other point that I would want to make about this one one guy who writes about this a lot, a psychologist, says every generation of kids that are born face some kind of life uh, event big life event that affects their way of thinking. There's a lot of this stuff about voting behavior, for example, the generational differences, World War II people and others. It would, so now he says it's likely that COVID is gonna be one of these events. Now, he said, he said the optimistic side is that we'll learn from this the importance of the collective for resiliency. That you know that when we were isolated, we came back and collective. He said, but we don't know yet. We don't really know what the effect long term is going to be. I guess I like to think that you know we don't give our kids enough credit, um, and that they will bounce back uh, and bounce back fast. I mean, I, I was watching the news after the first day of school, and and I, I think it was an administrator was saying, well, the for recess, the kids came out and. You know, they were they've been with their pods and they're like, well, is it OK to go play with sure. Joey over there on the other side? Because I like Joey. I haven't seen Joey for a while. But, you know, it's just interesting to see how they adapted, you know, a little cautious at first. But then they just. Oh, no, I think that's right. I think the, the interesting thing to me is one of the ways one of the good things and bad things about kids is they don't always listen to adults. Right. And and that's a sign. It's a sign of extreme exager- of aggravation. It's also a, a sign of being able to make adjustments. Um, I've listened to my granddaughter talk a little bit about going to school in this. And what we often see as big things, they see as small things that they can make the, the uh, adjustment to. Yeah, and I know there was another school administrator I talked to who said, you know, the, the little ones, for two years, they've just been masked. The yeah, whole time, and, well, and that's all they know. That's all they know. But it's also it'll be really interesting to see to keep this issue from being politicized, and to see okay, so they took the mask off, 
we made all kinds of assumptions uh, based on not very good research about how bad that effect would be. Well, I don't know. Um, what this suggests is that if you do other things to make it possible, you know, if uh, to the other kinds of things that are related to resiliency, it may not have a, a big effect at all. But at the same time, and this is my last comment, remember how serious the problems in schools are now by kids who got lost, who, I mean, some, I mean, just disappeared from the school system or were isolated without really having some education. So it's a huge challenge, but there is this size that said, we know something about resiliency, and that's a, that's more than a little bit optimistic. Yeah, we can get through this. Yes. We can get through this. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. We got through this. Yes. We have been talking with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, in our biweekly segment we call The, the Long View. Check out the links to the articles on resilience on our website later today. Is there jet fuel in the drinking water or not? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat. Editor Chad Blair is on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning to you, Catherine. Yeah, so the story uh, that we're focusing on is a story by Christina Jedra. Uh, and it had to do with a dashboard that, that was unveiled <laughs> by the University of Hawaii, and then it got pulled back. Yeah, not not just that. There was a, a press release as well uh, posted um, and also a press conference scheduled. This happened just yesterday morning. And we're talking about, um, well, as you indicated, samples from the Navy water system tested positive for jet fuel. This is after the Navy and the Department of Health uh, determined that things were safe. This was back in March. The samples were taken later in, in March and April. And uh, it's still quite unclear, and we'll get to that in a moment, but it then mysteriously disappeared from the University of Hawaii's website. This, By the way, this is the UH Red Hill Task Force that is posting this information. We're not entirely clear what happened, but UH uh, has told us that um, apparently this information was issued prematurely <laughs> and that they're apologizing. Uh, but still a lot of, from Christina's story, a lot of questions still remain, a lot of things that are unclear. Right, because they did uh, publish uh, kind of a timeline and, and some test results about, you know, uh, supposedly uh, some uh, some things that were in the water that uh, maybe shouldn't have been. Yeah, specifically, they're they're saying from these uh, these samples that there's evidence of a low concentration of what's known as JP5 jet fuel. It's in a very small percentage of samples. Uh, the samples uh, areas were identified. That's Ford Island, uh, Hickam, and Red Hill Malka. Uh, and again, just to clarify, this is after the do not drink advisory was lifted by the by the DOH. Um, we're not quite sure whether this has any impact on human health. It's unclear. By the way, UH Communications 
team did not make available anybody to talk about this for for interviews. Uh, there are different sampling methods. Uh, the Navy and the DOH DOH actually uh, send their samples to the mainland for you know for the best kind of testing involved. And we can tell you this: this Red Hill Task Force at UH it doesn't uh, doesn't says it's not qualified to make any determination on this. Uh, and so maybe we shouldn't panic just yet, but it is kind of alarming. Uh, I know Christina did talk to some of the folks out there that have still complain. You, I'm sure you've heard this as well. There are still some folks that complain that they're not feeling so well. One of the people that Christina talked to said she was disturbed uh, by this latest report. Yeah, you know, I, I did check with DOH uh, about uh, whether, you know, they had issues with this being released. And uh, they said that, you know, they didn't ask uh, for this dashboard to be taken down. They did raise some questions about the methods that were used, you know, for these hyd- uh, floral hy- hydrocarbons. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. It, uh, this is in the article as well. Uh, this method is is described as a highly sensitive testing method. It, it's called fluorescence, and I'm going to probably pronounce this incorrectly, but I'll do the best I can. Fluorescence spectroscopy, and uh, it uses light uh, to detect uh, chemical compounds. This is not certified by the EPA uh, as a method to be used, but of course, this is a research uh, group that's looking into this. We did get a statement from the Navy uh, saying it, it will continue uh, to work with the various agencies, including the Department of Health, to ensure that the water quality is safe. But given the, hmm, how shall I put it, the history of deception uh, that we've had over this, uh, the fact that the Navy was denying for a very long time what in fact turned out to be true, I think can only really cause a lot of concern, particularly for those folks who live out there and consume those water resources. Yes, and the trust factor is something that's mm. been uh, severely lacking and and so yeah, you, you, this was not good. This is another uh, <laughs> uh, black eye all around. You know, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of this. You know, why it was released and why there was supposed to have been this news conference, and then everything just got shut down. Uh, right, so and most importantly of, of all. Yeah, hopefully we'll find out whether it's impacted people's health or, or could. And that is, I think, the thing that everybody is mostly concerned about. Uh, but it, it appears to have been an error. I mean, that's one of the things about the Internet, right? You put something up right away and whoops, maybe you shouldn't have done that. But that's what happens is journalists then take screenshots, right? And right. that's how we maintain the, the record of this. So thank you, Catherine. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. We have been talking to uh, uh, editor Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jedra's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
Maybe you've been to this part of our backyard, the Elks Club in Waikiki, situated on a beautiful beachfront property with clear views of Diamond Head. It's one of the earliest lodges started in our state by the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks. Their history goes back a few centuries to 1868 when they first started in New York. After annexation, the fraternal group arrived in Honolulu with the official initiation of BPOE Lodge 616 in April of 1901. It relocated a few times and resides at its current location after Julia White, the wife of prominent businessman James B. Castle, sold the Elks the tranquil 155,000-square-foot property in the then-countryside of Waikiki following the death of her husband in 1918. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know where Lodge 616 was first installed. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Today we were supposed to hear from Republican candidate for Lieutenant Governor Junior Tupai, but he opted out of our scheduled interview. So we moved up another Republican candidate in that race, Rob Burns. You may know him as the founder of Local Motion. So we asked him, why turn from business to public service? With decades of experience, of executive experience especially, I built Locomotion into a multi-million dollar company and sold it in 91 when I was 40 years old. Retirement at 40 turned out to be a tad boring, so I decided to turn my passion into buying, merchandising, marketing, and selling real estate and a new career. I joined my team of Hawaii friends at List Sotheby's International and became top producing agent, except for the hiatus that happened during this campaign. As a native Hawaiian, my knowledge of all things Hawaiian is incomparable. I develop unique talents in my business creator, sales, marketing, lifelong design and merchandising experience, negotiator, surfer, surfboard shaper, maker, music producer, musician, top real estate agent, and now running for lieutenant governor. With my knowledge of this, some call me the Hawaiian Google. They think that I'm the best choice to be representing the people of Hawaii and existing representatives make poor decisions to problems they have created over the 60-year period. My life story is a unique one, and the rest of the story, you can go find it at Rob Burns, Lieutenant Governor for Hawaii.com. Well, you know, your website does talk about the brain drain, how a lot of people have left Hawaii just because they just can't afford it anymore. It's true. Well, that's one of the reasons, but the main reason, there's a lot of things strangling people here. 
And it's not just housing, it's not just gas, it's not just the cost of living. There's, I would say, fear going around, a lot of control going around. And I think that that is one of the stumbling blocks for people of Hawaii, especially those who have been living here their whole lives like I have. It's getting to be a lot more of a situation where there's leaders and there's followers, and we are definitely not leaders. We're just, you know, to do what they say and the hell with the truth of the matter. As long as they say do it, then we do it. And that has been highlighted with the, I would say, COVID scare Mm -hmm. and so forth. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really want to, I am part Hawaiian and my holy side of the family came in here in 1820. So I'm quite aware of the situation from the beginning of, I would say, introduction of white people to now. And I'm a little bit shocked to see how everything is blamed on us holidays. I think there's a lot of problems. You know, my deep desire is to share the heavy lifting to raise Hawaii and its beloved people. That's why I'm running for lieutenant governor. I'm not a career politician, never have been. In fact, I've considered it for 30 to 40 years and haven't decided to run until now it's gotten so bad and it's actually gotten so good for the possibility of taking the state and fixing it taking it back and fixing it to the to the point where i decided to run the share was it anything particular locally or nationally there's been a lot of things over the years that have sparked my attention i'm quite interested in economies and we actually are the worst in every category from education to business to cost of living rentals housing. And it just got too much when they shut down. Probably the best place in the world to combat COVID, they locked down the islands of Hawaii to the 50th one to return to normality. And I thought that that was a big mistake. The school systems and all this other problems that have been created over the last 60 years are just results of poor management, poor decisions, poor solutions. And it's time that, you know, as a business person, you know, you have to make a lot of decisions and they are critical to you staying in business. In government, the solutions don't have to be right. They can be wrong. And in fact, I don't remember ever hearing a politician apologize for making mistakes on calls of, let's just say, doing the rail. Billions of dollars over the budget when we were promised on time and on budget from Mr. Coldwell, I think it was. Right now, the challenge for the Republican Party is that, you know, there's a rift We talked to another Republican last week who considers himself a centrist. So where do you stand within the party? Well, there's problems within both parties, actually. I think that you'll notice the the Democrats are arguing more than we are because of the corruption that they're throwing at each other. To be a part of a party doesn't mean you have to be centrist. I think a balanced party between the Democrats and the Republicans is the safest and best thing for us because then there's a yin and a yang push that would level things out. I think many people hope that we could have a strong two-party system. Where do you see yourself in the party? I mean, where do you stand on some of these hot-button issues? Well, if you were to say that Democrats are on the far left, I think that I would say that the Republicans would be considered on the far right. But that doesn't mean that we aren't negotiable on certain things that they've done right, because most of the Democrats, I think, have probably started off some part of their life being a little bit more conservative. And to go along to get along with their party, they have gone a bit too far left. And that's created things like the worst business climate in Hawaii, the cost of living. And I think that I would be on the far right as far as conservative thinking 
And I don't think it's wrong to say that. I think that we've had 60 years of wrongly accused of being conservative. And the conservative has brought, in my opinion, America to being number one. And now that we're losing conservative values and good policies, that we are actually way down, not even in the top three anymore as far as countries go. I'm just curious, you know, with the headlines about the January 6th insurrection there at the Capitol, I mean, how are you viewing that? I think most people that have a clear mind know that it wasn't what they're painting it out to be. In fact, they've had much worse, meaning the Democrats have had much worse entries and fires and destruction. And that some of the people that have been promoting this sort of entry and so forth are have not been charged and are actually put in there by the, the government because they're the only ones that aren't charged for anything. And I don't know the fellow's name right now, but it, it, it uh, escapes me. But I think it's a, it's a shibai and it's smoke and mirrors, and I think most people see it. Because countries, cities, shall I just say cities in particular in America, have been ruined and are still ruined from all these fires and, and uh, campaigns that have been levied against policemen and so forth. And it's just, it's not what people want. I don't think that most people in Hawaii are happy about that. What do you think happened on January 6th? I was here. I was in Hawaii. So I don't know. But what I've seen on the videos... It looks like there's one guy trying to promote, let's go in there, let's get it, you know, let's charge And he's the only guy that hasn't been charged. A woman was shot without a gun, and there was a guy that died of a heart attack. And you would think that the guys rushed the doors and killed people as they were running in. That's not what happened. And, you know, it's a, it's a shibai. And I think that it's way overplayed, and I really do think that it's time that people would show where they really think the situation was at, and they're going to be, I think, voting opposite of the, quote, blue wave and making it a red wave because of the lies and the, the over-exaggerations of certain things. Anything else that you want to underscore just as a newcomer into the political field? Well, my main thought is, I mean, I'm surprised that people stand up on camera and say things that they know aren't true. Like some people complain that people don't have enough experience. And then they say that they've been there for 15 years. And like, they don't even know about these problems. So I I didn't have anything to do with them. And I don't know how to fix them, but I'm gonna fix them now if I get elected. So I really feel that the people, the candidates that are running have helped either by omission or been involved in the problems. And the solutions have been horrible. And they're not going to get fixed if we don't change the players. When I talk about a a red wave, I mean, you can't just have a governor lingo and a lieutenant governor Duke Iona and expect it to change. We have to change the whole system to make it more balanced. And you can't, in 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 an event like a campaign and an election, you have to change everybody or at least try to. And it's like inviting people to a party. You're going to invite 100. You're probably going to get 25. And same thing with an overthrow of this particular government run by the Democrats, that we need to clean the slate and whatever happens, hopefully it'll be coming around 50 percent, 51 percent of a different uh, group. Otherwise, we're going to have the same old, same old. And we can't take this much longer. Honestly, people are leaving by the droves. They can't afford the gas. They can't afford the food. They can't afford the rent. They can't afford the business. It's it's incredible that we've survived this far and it's time to stop and people have had enough of it.
in my opinion. That was GOP Lieutenant uh, Governor Candidate Rob Burns, who people may know as the founder of the local motion surf shop turned music producer turned real estate professional. For more election coverage and information on candidates, check out the election page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. It's been three years since the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled that the state has a constitutional duty to provide a Hawaiian language immersion education in public schools. The growing demand for kaiapuni, or Hawaiian immersion, is opening up conversations around teacher qualifications and adequate staffing. HPR's Kuube Hiraishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, yes, the Hawaii Supreme Court ruling in Clarabal versus State back in uh, 2019 was really the first legal opinion articulating and enforcing this right to communicate in Olalo Hawaii. And uh, the case involved a mother, Miss Clara Ball, who wanted Hawaiian immersion education for her two school-aged daughters on Lanai, where at the time there was no such program. And efforts were made on, on behalf of the DOE to kind of survey demand for Kayapuni education to recruit teachers, but it just could not happen. And so this case made it all the way to the, to the Supreme Court. And the key takeaways from that ruling um, that will help kind of contextualize uh, what happens after this is that one, uh, that Kayapuni was a, a right, uh, is a right, and that the state has a duty uh, to provide that type of education. And two, that in order for Olalo Hawaii to be revived, uh, students need access to immersion education at a minimum, because there was this idea that, oh, why don't they just do those two hours after school as enrichment, you know, Hawaiian language after school as sort of an extra uh, thing. But in order to revive the language, it would need to at minimum be immersion education. But that was interesting. And then the third uh, takeaway there was that this mandate is, is not so easily excused. You can't just say, oh, there's no teachers. It's hard. Sorry. It needs to be actually um, implemented or make every reasonable effort, I believe, is the text uh, in that ruling. But one of the biggest challenges uh, and a longstanding systemic one is the challenge to supply adequate staffing, right? Finding teachers who can speak Hawaiian, but who also can teach certain subjects or meet the requirements uh, of the current DOE teacher qualification programs. So right now, there are more than 100 teacher vacancies as students go back to school this week uh, in Hawaiian language immersion school statewide. That's a lot. That is a lot. And and it may, it's something that we always kind of, uh, growing up in the program myself, I remember sort of, it was either you could have somebody who spoke Hawaiian um, or you could have somebody who doesn't speak as well in, in terms of Hawaiian, but who knows the subject and can teach you. And it was always this sort of trade-off. Uh, Native Hawaiian educator Kalehua Krug, who's a former Kayapuni teacher and a DOE uh, education specialist, uh, as well as now principal of Kawai Honokana'awa Public Charter School uh, out there on the west coast of Oahu, says, you know, there are schools struggling to get 20% of the day in Olalo Hawaii because of that staffing issue. Uh, he says part of the, the problem is that the opportunities for teaching at Kayapuni schools are limited by these licensure and certification requirements, right? The four-year degree, content requirements, training, all of that. Here's Krug. 
As a community, however, what many of us are going to be proposing down the road is re-looking at teacher qualifications and re-looking at the types of opportunities that include Olel Hawaii in all of our school sites so that there are multiple uh, doors open for our community to supply adequate staffing. Because the doorways, the, these doors of opportunities are not there for our communities, we don't have an accurate view of community need. This is only the need as we show up to the doors of opportunity that are open right now. When you open other doors, we don't know how many other of our families will walk in the door. So it, it's difficult, though. They can't just ramp, ramp this up overnight. Right, right. Well, one thing that I was going to mention that we saw during the pandemic uh, was that the DOE actually did have some uh, struggle in providing uh, teachers for distance learning for Kayapuni kids. And so part of the changes that happened specific to the pandemic was to allow this sort of recalibration of the teaching requirements to have maybe students who are um, Hawaiian language speakers who might not yet have their degree to, to help out and start teaching and get the experience of teaching in the classroom. Um, but this, this idea of kind of changing things around to prioritize Olala Hawaii as the requirement for Kayapuni teachers, at least in Krug's eyes, is something that will uh, allow the DOE and the state to, to really meet that community need that, that they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a challenge just, you know, with regular education. And so when you have these specialized programs, you know, unless you can get the native Hawaiian speakers that are at UH, you know, directly into the pathway, it, it's a real big challenge. Right. And then that's part of what Krug is, is sort of getting at is this idea of quality versus quantity. When we think about these requirements as sort of the, the standard base, you know, line need uh, that creates this dissonance between the community and the system uh, when the DOE kind of upholds these qualities to the detriment of the community needs. So it'll be an interesting uh, sort of uh, trend to follow moving forward as the growth of Kayapuni, uh, demand for Kayapuni continues to grow. Uh, I think we'll see more of these issues and solutions being proposed. And because you're a graduate of the immersion program, you know, when you see and cover stories like this mm -hmm. at this level i don't know that must just make you feel so gratified it, it does it feels like there are some solutions and conversations being had about the solutions because i think for a really long time it was sort of uh, incumbent on the uh, community to figure it out wow okay well thank you so much uh, Kuwevehi. uh interesting perspective on this issue We've been talking to hbr's kuvehira ishi you can check out her stories on this issue at hawaiipublicradio.org Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Cross-Pollination, Flowers Across the Collection, artworks from Homa's vaults and galleries exploring the resonance of flowers in art. Opens August 4th, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Deborah Silverman, author of The Missing Element, Compassion for the Human Condition. The next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about personality types and how you can find the missing element that will change your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today we focus our binoculars on a group of goose-sized seabirds and their acrobatic aerials over the ocean. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to boobies in this week's Manu Minute. Boobies are a group of goose-sized tropical seabirds with long pointed bills, wings, and tails. There are three species of boobies that live in Hawaii, the red-footed, the brown, and the masked, and all are known by their Hawaiian name of ah, spelled okina a with a kahako over the a. Ah is a sound they often make when nesting, and it's also the shortest name for any bird in the world. Red-footed boobies in Hawaii are mostly white with bright red legs, while brown boobies are just that, a deep chocolatey brown. Masks are also white but have yellow bills and a jet black mask. All of them forge by making spectacular head-first aerial plunges into the ocean from heights of up to 30 meters to grab a variety of fish and squid. Nesting mainly occurs on the northwest Hawaiian Islands, as well as many offshore islets around the main Hawaiian Islands, but the red-footed also nest in fairly large numbers in shrubs and small trees at Kaneohe Marine Base on Oahu. Unlike many other birds, boobies often incubate their eggs by sitting on them with their big webbed feet. Masked and brown boobies nest on the ground, and they typically lay two eggs a few days apart. The first chick to hatch grows quickly, and in most years kills its siblings soon after it hatches. A very common practice in some groups of birds that's known as siblicide. It's generally thought they do this because there's not enough food for both chicks to survive. If they do successfully leave the nest, boobies can live to well over 20 years old. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Earlier in the show, for our backyard question, we asked you about the history of the Elks Lodge in Waikiki. Uh, it's the beachside area across from Kapilani Park. The group's roots go back to 1868 when the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks formed in New York City to help serve those in need. After annexation, Jerome Fisher arrived in Honolulu to install the first Elks Lodge in the territory of Hawaii. On April 15, 1901, Fisher called a meeting in order uh, to order in rented rooms of a lava block structure on the corner of Fort Street and Baratania. Uh, a few months later, in November 1901, the Hawaii Elks moved to a new home on the corner of Miller and Baratania Streets. A notable early member was Henry Berger bandmaster of the Royal Hawaiian Band. The final move for the Elks was in 1918 after James uh, Castle's widow, Julia White, sold the current beachside property to the order. And to think the initiation of BPOE Lodge 616 took place in Progress Hall, still standing today on the Mauka end of Fort Street Mall. Uh, It was used uh, by Hawaii Pacific University for offices and classrooms. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. And oh, by the way, we had no winners today. Hawaii's rich history is layered with uh, contributions from multiple cultures. Asian and Hispanic immigrants and their descendants have served as business leaders and held public office. Their customs became our customs. Taking our shoes off before going into a home was learned from the Japanese. We set off fireworks on the New Year's Eve thanks to the Chinese. And another culture that's been long entwined with our history but is often overlooked is black culture. The Obama Hawaiian Africana Museum hopes to change that by documenting the lives of the people of African descent that began arriving in the islands around 1750. Dolores Gutman is the founder and curator of the museum. She stopped by our studio to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiano about her efforts. Can you talk about the origins of the museum and the, and the purpose for the museum? We were founded as the African American Diversity Culture Center Hawaii in 1997. Okay, so you've been around for a we while. We've been around for a while, but yeah. we talk a story, but when you say African-American, people automatically think mainland. Mm-hmm. They don't think Hawaii. That was the, the, the main thing, and it came out because people didn't know about people of African descent contribution for 200 years in the islands. I'm a local girl <laughs> with all my education at the University of Hawaii, mm-hmm. undergrad and graduate work in both museum studies and historic preservation. And I had all of this data that Catherine Takara had done for her thesis mm-hmm. was my beginning talking about people and their contribution. But they came from Africa first and the Caribbean. Okay. And they also came on British ships even before the missionaries got here. Wow. And wow. that brings me to the most prominent person there is 1810, Anthony D. Allen. Mm-hmm. He Caribbean gave him land where the Washington Middle School is today. And that's sort of a beginning point. So when this museum started, was it the idea to educate people about the role of people of African descent and black people? Yeah, well, actually, it started with the little girl at Hawaii Elementary. (laughs) I've I've been living in Hawaii since 73, so my worldview is from Hawaii, and I came out wet behind the ears from Philadelphia, and no walls up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and learning. Uh-huh. And I've been in, involved in the community from Wainai to Wabanello, started with Patch of Children Together. That's Parents and Children Together mm-hmm. Project. And so one day a mother called me and said her little child, she was the only African-American military family living in Waipahu at Honawai Elementary. And she was crying and she didn't want to go to school. And I guess being military and black children and the teachers they don't know, I guess, know how to work with families and so forth in that sense. So I did interviews with the complex superintendents. And uh, Superintendent uh, Hokama was the one that gave me, she was Leeward District. She said, you need to do workshops to introduce our teachers and our communities and tell them about black culture and uh, African culture, or, or all the pieces. And that's what I did. And so my husband said, you need to start set up an organization so that people can see you so you have a hat. So you can talk about that in a constructive way, not as one individual. And so that was the beginning of it. And then in 2018, Marie Milks, who is a retired judge, she said, we have to take on the bomber's name because nothing is being done about it. It's a trade name. We're using that instead of African American Diversity Culture Center. That's the parent company. 
I remember shortly after President Obama's term ended, there was a competition, I, I guess, between us and Illinois right. for the presidential Yeah, I sat on that library. committee. And I know ultimately Illinois was chosen to host a library. So by taking on President Obama's name. Yeah, that was part of yeah. the part. That was a segment of it that he wanted to be here in Hawaii. Yeah. And because of that, that was one of the reasons that we took on his name mm-hmm. to be able to do the education component. And our mission is pre-K to 12. Okay. So it, it was the educational arm which he wanted, and per his sister Maya, mm-hmm. who also consults with us. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're doing to honor the birthplace of the 44th U.S. president. Has the president had the chance to come and visit the museum? Not yet, but okay. I'm waiting for him to come up now that uh, he's settled himself in Wabanello. You know, when, when I was growing up, and I think when a lot of people were growing up, it's taught in schools, you know, how immigrants from Japan and China mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Portugal, you know, and we have all these mixed ethnic cultures mm-hmm. in Hawaii. One thing I I feel is probably overlooked is the contributions that people of African descent or black people have uh, yes, made very, to the history. Yes, very much so. And yeah. I was, uh, years ago in 2014, I was working with uh, Senator Sp- uh, Sparrow, mm-hmm. who tried to get our history recognized as, at least talked about in a, on a commission, but it didn't mm-hmm. happen. Somebody didn't want our story to be told. Nope. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, but that doesn't mean that we're not a, uh, right. we're, we're part of this culture. Right. And yeah. our, uh, the newcomers, they married Hawaiian women, Portuguese mm-hmm. women, all the plantation. They interacted with each other. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other story right there. You had mentioned the gentleman before that. It had Anthony helped. D. Anthony. Right. And I'm a little familiar with Alice Ball as well. And I. Oh, yeah. Alice yeah, Ball. Alice those Ball. are two main yeah. known people. Yes. Yeah. And Al- Alice Ball, I believe help develop the cure for leprosy, for Hansen, right? Yeah, yeah for Hansen's, Hansen's disease. disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she died from the fumes that were in, you remember how we only had little uh, plantation houses that she had to work mm-hmm. on at the, at, when the university was a college, a two-year college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, it sounds like she gave her life in order to save a, a yes. lot of other people's lives. I like yeah. that. She gave her life yeah. to save other people because the chamogo oil that she cooked and, mm-hmm. and injected in, Ho- in Native Hawaiian, it did help to pre- relieve the pain. Mm-hmm. But And then her dean, after she died, her dean took it to the next level nationally. And so part of what she found here, they were able to build on that for eradicating leprosy. Yeah, that's a pretty Is that so beautiful? And we want the Hawaiian people to know how much people sacrifice their lives. And, and, and anyway, it wasn't racism. The other thing during those days, it wasn't racism that the issue. That's more a nuance in, in contemporary time. When immigrants first started coming over, when African immigrants first started coming over, why did they come over? Was it for work or was Well, it... some, uh, for example, this came on the British ships and yeah. American ships. Like Anthony Allen was, he was a slave from upstate New York, mm-hmm. and he got his freedom by running away to Boston, mm-hmm. where a lot of other free Africans were on ships and traveled around the world. And Allen traveled around the world, but he stayed with the same captain that his whole time on the water, which was eight years. And when he was ready to leave, he told his captain he wanted to leave and go back and live in Hawaii because this is a free place in, in the world. This is 1810. Mm-hmm. And also, he was accompanying his captain with taking Kamehameha around the island and his five wives at that time mm-hmm. for a whole month, and he cooked for them wow. on the ship. That's how he yeah. got to know King Kamehameha. Then he lived with the high priestess there on until they gave him that property. When they came over to Hawaii, did they find that 
Hawaii receive them willingly? Was it was it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that that's a good point yeah. that you're bringing out. Uh, you have to think about the Native Hawaiians have been living on the. I like to use the ancient Hawaiians so because it's like three thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. They were dark skinned people from Tahiti and Makisa, and so the, the the people on the ship didn't look any different. But when the men jumped ship here, the captains were ill and that kind of thing. And and after the island, after he set up his complex that King Kamehameha had given him, he had ten grass huts. There was a hospital, a restaurant, a bar. He had delivery stable for the for people just uh, traveling on the horses, and he had a garden. And he, he, he set up the first uh, Waikiki resort, but that, that's how they came. And they did come to work on plantations mm-hmm. from Tennessee and Atlanta and also Puerto Rico. And so when you think about the role that black people have had in our history and how sometimes it's overlooked, do you feel like that directly affects the way race relations are now? I think it has an impact, and I'm not sure... Uh, I know how people feel about the missionaries. I think it impacts because of the way it, it was part of uh, expansionism mm-hmm. and how America was looking for places in the world of strategic positioning, and Hawaii was that. And so with that comes all the other baggage from the mainland, yeah. and that brings us back to the Massey case in right. 1932. It's alive and well, and 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 how they're socializing uh, the uh, local people. Mm-hmm. All ethnic groups started with the plantation, and also the plantation were owned by the missionary families and their cohorts from the mainland. Right, and so you can see how we were shaped by the time they locked up Queen Lily of Colony in the, in the late eighteen hundreds. McCann Stewart defended her when they put her when allow her to become queen. Right, and he was, he was a black man as well, He was right? a black from New York, right. and he went to Supreme Court defending her land rights and, and, and positions along with the Chinese uh, immigrants in the Exclusionary Act, 1882. Wow. Uh, yeah, he went to defend them. I'm not able to do all that research. That's what mm-hmm. I'm, future generation scholars have to do. All I'm doing is uh, uh, making sure that's in the bibliography and digitized so that they can uncover the story, and also be able to talk about all the people, because Anthony Allen's children are still going on the, on the Big Island. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, there are five like, generations yeah. of them by now. We've been dealing for 1800. You were talking about how there's still some work for future generations to do. Oh. Yeah. I haven't scratched the surface. This is just one dimension of this history that I've uncovered since, since I became museum educator. Because through that lens, you tell a cultural, intercultural piece of history. Yeah. And out here in Hawaii, I think we start up as cross-cultural, and then we went to multicultural, and now is ethnic diversity. And but the people that came to Hawaii was seeking freedom, and they jumped ship if they stopped in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. We have the the British ships first, the commercial ships, the United States commercial, and the whaling, and those two things brought people of African descent from North America, especially the whalers. My last question just has to do with the Obama Walk. Can you just talk about... Yeah, with our Obama Walk, yeah. the reason why we created an Obama Month, uh, we have to uh, honor the 44th U.S. president because mm-hmm. he put us really on the map around the world. And his position, we served two full terms and that we need to empower our young people. And so we're choosing to talk about him and our work through Obama Month, which is now the light bulb for us. Up until we took on his name, 
people didn't pay too much attention to all the work that has been had been done to uncover a lot of our history, and we have documentation. So now it's time for us to talk story and to share this history, and that's what we're doing during August, Obama Month. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dolores. I really enjoyed talking to well, you. Well, thank you so much, and thank you yeah. for having me. That was Dolores Goodman of the Obama Hawaiian Africana Museum talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Uh, Goodman says the museum hopes to one day purchase the former president's uh, childhood home in Manoa to house their historical exhibits. The museum is also holding its Obama Walk tomorrow to celebrate the former president's birthday. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we learn about a breakthrough rearing a tropical sea urchin in a research lab on Coconut Island. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find all of our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.